This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of extensor tendon injuries from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Extensor tendon injuries can be caused by laceration, trauma, or overuse. As far as the epidemiology, the most commonly injured digit is the long finger, and zone 6 is the most frequently injured zone. As far as the mechanism, in zone 1 injuries, these are typically caused by forced flexion of an extended DIP joint. In zone 2 injuries, the mechanism is typically dorsal laceration or a crush injury. And in zone 5 injuries, these are commonly from a quote-unquote fight bite or a sagittal band rupture, otherwise known as a flea flicker injury. The specific mechanism for a sagittal band rupture or a flea flicker injury is forced extension of a flex digit, and keep in mind that these injuries are most common in the long finger. As far as the classification of extensor tendon injuries, zones of extensor tendon injuries are typically divided into nine zones. Zone 1 corresponds to disruption of the terminal extensor tendon distal to or at the DIP joint of the fingers and the IP joint of the thumb, or EPL. A mallet finger is considered a zone 1 injury. Zone 2 injuries correspond to disruption of the tendon over the middle phalanx or the proximal phalanx of the thumb, or EPL. Zone 3 injuries correspond to disruption over the PIP joint of the digit, or central slip, or the MCP joint of the thumb, that is the EPL and EPB. A boutonniere deformity is considered a zone 3 injury. A zone 4 injury corresponds to disruption over the proximal phalanx of the digit or metacarpal of the thumb, that is the EPL and EPB. Zone 5 injuries correspond to disruption over the MCP joint of the digit or the CMC joint of the thumb, that is the EPL and EPB. A fight bite is common for zone 5 injuries, and a sagittal band rupture is also considered a zone 5 injury. Zone 6 corresponds to disruption over the metacarpal, and keep in mind that nerve and vessel injury is likely in zone 6 injuries. A zone 7 injury corresponds to disruption at the wrist joint. You must repair the retinaculum to prevent bowstringing, and tendon repair is followed by immobilization with the wrist in 40 degrees of extension and the MCP joint in 20 degrees of flexion for 3 to 4 weeks. A zone 8 injury corresponds to disruption at the distal forearm. And finally, a zone 9 injury corresponds to the extensor muscle belly and is usually from penetrating trauma. Zone 9 injuries are often associated with neurologic injury. Keep in mind that tendon repair in zone 9 injuries are followed by immobilization with the elbow in flexion and the wrist in extension. Again, in zone 9 injuries, tendon repair is followed by immobilization with the elbow in flexion and the wrist in extension. Now let's go over the presentation of some extensor tendon injuries. In zone 1 injuries, patients will present with an inability to extend at the DIP joint. In zone 3 injuries, the Elson test will be positive. So in the Elson test, you will flex the patient's PIP joint over a table 90 degrees and ask them to extend against resistance. If the central slip is intact, the DIP will remain supple. If the central slip is disrupted, the DIP will be rigid. In zone 5 injuries, extensor lag and flexion loss is common. The junctura tendine may allow partial-slash-temporary extension by connecting with intact adjacent extensor tendons. In the setting of a sagittal band rupture, rupture of stronger radial fibers of the sagittal band may lead to extensor tendon subluxation. In the setting of a sagittal band rupture, the finger will be held in a flex position at the MCP joint with no active extension.
as far as imaging, an AP and a lateral radiograph of the digit should be obtained to verify that there is no bony avulsion, otherwise known as a bony mallet. As far as treatment of extensor tendon injuries, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management may include immobilization with early protected motion, DIP extension splinting, PIP extension splinting, and MCP extension splinting. Immobilization with early protected motion is indicated for lacerations of less than 50% of the tendon in all zones if the patient can extend the digit against resistance. DIP extension splinting is indicated for acute zone 1 injuries, otherwise known as mallet fingers, and keep in mind that an acute injury is defined as less than 12 weeks old. Other indications for DIP extension splinting include a non-displaced bony mallet and a chronic mallet finger if the joint is supple and congruent. Keep in mind that a chronic mallet finger is defined as one that is greater than 12 weeks old. As far as the techniques for DIP extension splinting, full-time splinting is typically done for six weeks, part-time splinting can be done for four to six weeks, and remember to avoid hyperextension, which may cause skin necrosis. And finally, make sure to maintain PIP motion in DIP extension splinting. As far as outcomes, non-compliance is a common problem. Indications for PIP extension splinting is for a closed central slip injury or a zone 3 extensor tendon injury. As far as techniques, full-time splinting is typically done for 6 weeks or part-time splinting can be done for 4 to 6 weeks. And make sure to maintain DIP flexion in the setting of PIP extension splinting. Finally, indications for an MCP extension splint is for closed zone 5 sagittal band rupture. And as far as techniques, full-time splinting is done for 4 to 6 weeks. Operative options for extensor tendon injuries include immediate IND, tendon repair, fixation of bony avulsions, tendon reconstruction, central slip reconstruction, and an EIP to EPL tendon transfer. Indications for an immediate IND include a fight bite to the MCP joint, and as far as the technique, you should close the wound loosely or in a delayed fashion. You will treat these patients with culture-specific antibiotics, although Iconella corrodens is a common mouth organism. Indications for a tendon repair is a laceration greater than 50% of the tendon width in all zones. Indications for a fixation of a bony avulsion is for a mallet finger with a P3 volar subluxation. Examples of fixation techniques of a bony avulsion include close reduction and percutaneous pinning through the DIP joint, extension block pinning, or open reduction and internal fixation if it involves greater than 50% of the articular surface. Indications for tendon reconstruction include a chronic tendon injury or when the repair is not possible. As far as techniques for central slip reconstruction, these include a tendon graft, an extensor turndown, a lateral band mobilization, transverse retinacular ligament, and an FDS slip. Finally, indications for an EIP to EPL tendon transfer is for a chronic EPL rupture. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail. We'll go over tendon repair, tendon reconstruction, and tenolysis. So as far as tendon repair, the incision technique will utilize the laceration when present, and you will extend the incision as needed to gain appropriate exposure. A longitudinal incision may be utilized across joints on the dorsum of the digits, unlike the palmar side. As far as the suture technique, the number of suture strands that cross the repair site is more important than the number of grasping loops. 
Again, the number of suture strands that cross the repair site is more important than the number of grasping loops. In general, strength increases with the increasing number of sutures crossing the repair site, thickness of the suture, and locking of the stitch. Four to six strands provide adequate strength for early active motion. A circumferential epitendinous suture is optional for reinforcement. As far as repair failure, tendon repairs are weakest between post-operative day 6 and 12, and the repair usually fails at the knots. Moving on to tendon reconstruction, this is usually done as a two-stage procedure. First, a silicone tendon implant is placed to create a favorable tendon bed. Then you will wait three to four months and then place a biologic tendon graft. Make sure to only perform a single-stage reconstruction if the flexor sheath is pristine and the digit has full range of motion. Available grafts include the palmaris longus. However, keep in mind that this is absent in 15% of the population. However, this is the most common graft used. The plantaris is another available graft choice, however, is absent in 19% of patients. The plantaris is indicated as a graft choice if a longer graft is needed. Finally, the long toe extensor is another available graft option. Moving on to tenolysis, indications include adhesion formation with loss of finger flexion. However, you should wait for the soft tissue stabilization greater than three months and full passive motion of all joints. Tenolysis is obviously done postoperatively, and this procedure is followed with extensive therapy. As far as rehabilitation, options include early active short arc motion, or SAM, and a relative motion splint, otherwise known as a yoke splint. Indications for early active short arc motion, or SAM, is after a zone 3 central slip repair. The advantages of early active short arc motion over static immobilization is that it increases the total arc of motion, decreases the duration of therapy, increases DIP motion, and creates 4 millimeters of tendon excursion and prevents adhesions. Moving on to the relative motion splint or a yoke splint, this positions the involved MCP joint in hyperextension relative to the adjacent digits. Indications for a yoke splint is after a zone 4 through zone 7 extensor tendon repair. Advantages of a relative motion splint or a yoke splint over static immobilization and dynamic splinting include increased early active range of motion. It also decreases the strain on the tendon and prevents adhesions. It's easy for patient compliance, and it allows for earlier return to work. Finally, let's go over some complications after extensor tendon injuries. The ones to know include adhesion formation, tendon rupture, swan neck deformity, and a boutonniere deformity, or DIP hyperextension. So adhesion formation leads to a loss of finger flexion. This is common in zone 4 and zone 7 and in older patients. Adhesion formation is prevented with early protected range of motion and dynamic splinting, specifically in zone 4 injuries. Treatment of adhesion formation is extensor tenolysis with early motion indicated after failure of non-operative management, usually after three to six months. Keep in mind that tenolysis is contraindicated if done in conjunction with other procedures that require joint immobilization. As far as tendon rupture, causes include poor suture material or surgical technique, aggressive therapy, and non-compliance. The incidence is 5%, and most frequently occurs during the first 7 to 10 days postoperatively. As far as treatment of tendon rupture, early recognition may allow revision repair. However, tendon reconstruction can be done for late rupture or rupture with excessive scarring. 
A swan neck deformity is caused by prolonged DIP flexion with dorsal subluxation of the lateral bands and PIP joint hyperextension. Treatment of a swan neck deformity can involve a Fowler central slip tenotomy or a spiral oblique ligament reconstruction. Finally, as far as a boutonniere deformity or a DIP hyperextension, this is caused by central slip disruption and a lateral band volar subluxation. Treatment of a boutonniere deformity or DIP hyperextension is dynamic splinting or serial casting for maximal passive motion, as well as terminal extensor tenotomy or PIP volar plate release. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 28-year-old male sustains a laceration to the dorsal aspect of his left hand during an assault and clinical examination reveals a laceration in the extensor tendon zone 6 on the dorsum of the hand. He is unable to actively extend his ring finger. He undergoes primary repair of the injured structure and is placed into a relative motion splint, otherwise known as a yoke splint. All the following are benefits of the splint when compared to full-time extension splinting or dynamic splinting except, and the choices are 1. Interferes less with activities of daily living. 2. Better at limiting motion of the digit. 3. Decreased risk of adhesions. 4. Allows more range of motion of adjacent digits. And 5. Higher patient compliance with therapy. The correct answer to this question is 2. Better at limiting motion of the digit. So the relative motion splint or yoke splint allows for safe active range of motion of the injured digit after an extensor tendon laceration. The patient in the question stem sustained an extensor tendon laceration in extensor tendon zone 6. Following repair of complete lacerations, traditional treatment includes full-time extension splinting, but this treatment can lead to adhesions and limited motion. In addition, Full extension splinting or dynamic splinting without triggers interferes substantially with daily activities. The relative motion splint or a yoke splint holds the involved digits in relative hyperextension at the MCP joint, which allows for safe active MCP, PIP, and DIP motion immediately following surgery. Howell et al. review 140 cases over a 20-year period using the yoke splint. They report excellent motion with few extensor lags and no re-ruptures, as well as an early return to work and high patient compliance with the therapy. Sharma et al. performed a cadaveric biomechanical study looking at the relative motion splint. They determined that the relative motion splint reduces the effective strain on intact and repaired zone 6 middle finger extensor tendons and supports its clinical use. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old male college basketball player presents for evaluation of a right index finger deformity characterized as a boutonniere deformity. He reports a fall during a game eight weeks ago with resultant deformity to the index finger. He, quote, popped it back in and returned to play. Physical exam is most likely to demonstrate, and the choices are one, inability to passively extend the PIP joint to neutral, able to passively flex and extend the DIP joint, Two, with the PIP joint flexed, resistance to PIP joint extension causes the DIP joint to become supple. Three, dorsal subluxation of the PIP joint and the ability to passively flex and extend the DIP joint. Four, with the PIP joint flexed, resistance to the PIP joint extension causes the DIP joint to become rigid. And five, inability to actively flex the DIP joint and able to actively flex the PIP and the MCP joints.
The correct answer to this question is four. With the PIP joint flexed, resistance to PIP joint extension causes the DIP joint to become rigid. So the patient presents with a boutonniere deformity secondary to a traumatic central slip disruption in the setting of volar PIP joint dislocation. Physical exam will demonstrate a positive Elson's test, which is described in answer four, that is with the PIP joint flexed, resistance to PIP joint extension causes the DIP joint to become rigid. To quickly review, the digital extensor mechanism consists of the central slip and two lateral bands, all of which arise from the extensor digitorum communis tendon. Flexion of the PIP joint puts the central slip on tension and volarly subluxes the lateral bands, causing them to become slack. Tension on the central slip causes extension of the PIP joint with concomitant dorsal shift of the lateral bands, which help to bring the DIP joint into extension. In 1986, Elson described his physical examination maneuver for diagnosis of closed rupture of the central slip. With the hand resting on the edge of a table, the PIP joint is flexed to 90 degrees over the table edge, and the patient is asked to extend the digit against resistance. Active extension of the middle phalanx can only be observed with an intact central slip, and the adjacent lateral bands will remain slack, which allows the DIP joint to remain flail. In central slip ruptures, effort to extend the middle phalanx will be accompanied by DIP rigidity slash extension as the lateral bands are forced to contribute to extension. Rubin et al. performed a cadaveric study evaluating the efficacy of physical examination maneuvers to identify acute ruptures of the central slip. They found that Elson's test was the only maneuver that could discern central slip integrity in both tested scenarios, that is one, pre-boutonniere deformity with division of the central slip, and two, passively correctable boutonniere deformity caused by division of the central slip, the triangular ligament, and the oblique fibers of the extensor expansion. And moving on to the final question, a 20-year-old male tennis player reports the acute onset of ulnar-sided wrist pain after hitting a forehand shot. Examination reveals dorsal ulnar tenderness and minimal swelling. The pain is recreated with supination, wrist flexion, and ulnar deviation. Radiographs are normal. What structure is most likely involved? And the choices are 1. Ulnar styloid, 2. Flexor carpi radialis tendon, 3. Extensor carpi ulnaris tendon, 4. Scapholunate ligament, and 5. Transverse carpal ligament. The correct answer to this question is 3. Extensor carpi ulnaris tendon. So extensor carpi ulnaris lesions produce pain at the dorsal ulnar aspect of the wrist, particularly during wrist supination, wrist flexion, and ulnar deviation. It has been frequently described in tennis players. Most ECU tenosynovitis can be successfully treated non-surgically with immobilization techniques. Surgical treatment is generally indicated for ECU tenosynovitis or tendinopathy that does not respond to rest. Anatomically, the ECU retinaculum can rupture and the tendon can leave its sheath. With supination, the tendon can leave the sheath and then return to its position during pronation. That's all for this review about extensor tendon injuries. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.